Welcome to the 5 by your Quattro weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Meeple Lady does some 3D tile laying in Pastali. I go to the racetrack in Ready, Set, Bet. John builds Hadrian's Wall to defend the honor of the Roman Empire. And Justin influences elections and steers the economy in hegemony. But first, Sarah opens the pages to Everybody Wins. It's exciting, with a strong narrative, but enough randomness thrown in to keep things interesting. It's clever, well-written with great art, and I'm not talking about a hot new game, I'm talking about a book. About games. Specifically about the games that have won the Spiel des Jahres, the prestigious annual board game award. Everybody Wins, Four Decades of the Greatest Board Games Ever Made, is a new book by game designer and author James Wallace. The book was just published by Aconite Books, who sent me a review copy. Wallace is no stranger to board game awards, having founded the Diana Jones Award, and he examines all Spiel des Jahres winners in order from the first, Hare and Tortoise in 1979, to the most recent, Cascadia in 2022. The book only covers the main Spiel winners, and I was a little bummed not to hear what he had to say about recent Kenner Spiel winners like Isle of Sky or Wingspan, but I can understand why. Once you add the Kennerspiel, the Connoisseur or Expert Award, what about the Kinderspiel, the Children's Game Award? What about special awards, which were common in the early years? Where does it stop? No book can be about everything, and I think it was a smart choice to narrow the focus. And there is an inset for each year that lists every nominated, recommended, and awarded game that year, with at least a thumbnail description. I found the earlier years in Everybody Wins not more interesting, but there's a broader perspective in hindsight, almost by definition. It's hard to know how a game fits into the evolving board game design zeitgeist in its first year or two. I was also more likely to disagree with Wallace's opinions on more recent games. I think he's way too meh about King Domino. But disagreeing is intrinsic to talking about board games. A book about games that said nothing worth taking exception to would be pretty pale. Spiel des Jahres means simply Game of the Year, and the people behind it don't share a whole lot about how they decide on the winners. Perhaps because of that, Everybody Wins doesn't spend that much time speculating on why this game won over that, mainly just in the years when the awards seemed at odds with what was happening in board games at the time, or when there was a clearly superior game that didn't win, like, say, Sid Saxon's Can't Stop, which was under consideration several times but never won. I would have expected this lack of focus on the judging process to be a flaw. It's a book about the Spiel des Jahres. It should talk about how the winners are chosen, right? But in fact, I found it refreshing. I don't like it when people armchair quarterback the Spiel des Jahres. You know what I'm talking about. I hear this year after year, especially about the Kenner Spiel. This shouldn't have won the Kenner Spiel. They're misapplying the categories. It's not what the Kenner Spiel is for. I kind of think if you're not on the jury, it's not up to you what the Kenner Spiel is for. And if you think they're wrong every year, maybe you're the one who doesn't understand the categories. Everybody Wins is an antidote to that, with a lack of armchair quarterbacking, or should I say armchair jurying, that I really appreciate. Wallace takes each game on its own terms, looking at it in the context of its time, celebrating what it added to board game design as a whole, or didn't. Not every winning game was an innovator. Everybody Wins is a coffee table book, oversized with lots of photos, but it differs from most coffee table books in one key way. I wanted to read it all the way through. The game write-ups are engaging and give you a feel for how the game works, but never get bogged down in the weeds of rules descriptions. 
Wallace goes on some fascinating digressions, and I learned a few things, like who came up with the word meeple, and how did the city of Essen end up being central to the board game world. In fact, my only complaint about Everybody Wins is that the sidebars are white text on colored backgrounds that are color-coded by chapter, and a couple of the colors, especially the yellow-gold one, were so light it was difficult to read the sidebars. And I didn't want to miss them. Some of the funniest bits were in the sidebars. I met author James Wallace many years ago. He was in town to visit a mutual friend, and we became friends, though we never met in person again. We all went to a bookstore. Maybe it was a comic shop. Anyway, when we got back, James held up a small bag containing his purchases, wiggled it back and forth, and said, I'm shaking my booty. (laughs) Decades later, I can't think about that moment without laughing, and that sense of humor, dry, witty, often silly, is throughout Everybody Wins. This is a book about love of games, which often expresses its affection with gentle humor, not mockery. Almost every page turn was another game I wanted to play. Oh, Turn on Texas. I have to get that out. I haven't played it in ages. Or, oh yeah, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. I've been meaning to get that. I think I'd really like it. Or, Pandemic, Forbidden Island, and Forbidden Desert all didn't win. I want to play them all right now out of solidarity. You might be wondering, why read a book about board games when you could watch a thousand videos on YouTube or read Board Game Geek or listen to podcasts like this one? I do all those things too, but curling up with a well-written book that feels good in your hands and looks nice on your coffee table has a special appeal. It's kind of like the tactile appeal of board games versus video games. Tabletop games have something special to offer, and this book celebrates that. And that's Everybody Wins. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not reading about board games, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Sarah Ovenall or on Mastodon at Ovenall at Dice.camp. The first time I played Pastelli in 2018, my brain just about melted. At first glance, this small, unassuming box with the pretty pastel colors seemed like an adorable filler. Once you open the box, though, You'll soon realize that this cute route-building, tile-laying game is puzzly, ruthless, and intense. Designed by Masaki Suga, with artwork by Sayori Shibata, Pastali was originally published in 2018 by Analog Lunchbox, and for a bit was a Japanese game import on the board game Geek Store. Then in 2019, Pandasaurus began publishing it, and it became more widely available in America. Hurrah! The game plays 2-3 to three players and lasts about 30-40 to 40 minutes. Pastali comes with a 4-page rulebook, two thick cardboard square boards, one is the game board and the other is the scoreboard, and even thicker hexagonal diamond-shaped tiles. These tiles match the pastel color scheme of the box and the game board and all have a line or two printed in them, like little roads. There's also mini squares, which are player markers which you'll use, and level markers which are optional but nice to have for gameplay. The goal of the game is to place tiles and build routes so that you can tally where they pass through. Pastali! Setup is very easy. Remove the contents from the box, place the two square boards in the middle of the table, and shuffle the tiles and divide them into three stacks face down with 14 tiles each. Flip over the top tile from each stack. Players then pick their colors and after deciding which player goes first, they get to place one of their player markers anywhere 
on an edge of the game board. Then the next person clockwise places their marker until everyone has placed their first marker. It then snakes back counterclockwise until everyone places their second marker on an edge where they didn't play their first marker. This continues back and forth until everyone places all four of their markers, resulting in one marker per player per edge of the game board. The game board is made up of a grid with winding pathways throughout, all leading to one edge of the board. So now we're ready to play. On a player's turn, they can do one of two actions. They can take one of the face-up tiles and place it on the game board, or they can move their player marker along the edge of the game board. If you select a tile and place it on the board, you'll need to follow some placement rules. Tiles cannot be placed in a way that will cut off one or more tiles. Additionally, tiles can only be placed horizontally and vertically. And here's the kicker, you can stack tiles on top of each other as long as they're being placed on two tiles of the same height. After you place your tiles, you trace your connected routes, starting from one marker all the way to another across the board, hopefully through a combination of tiles and board spaces. The more tiles you pass through, the more points you'll get. You'll even get more points if your routes go through higher level tiles, but each marker can only connect to one other marker on the board. Scoring isn't exactly one for one, but instead a conversion table that's depicted on the scoring board. But basically, the more the better and the higher the better. If you select the other action on your turn, the one where you can move the markers, take one of your markers and move it one to two spaces. You can jump over a space that's occupied, potentially moving your marker three spaces. Moving your marker can be helpful to connect better routes or just connect any route when an opponent has blocked you. And this is where the game gets cutthroat. Placing tiles can block opponents or disrupt their really lucrative rounds. You're obviously trying to maximize placement with each turn, but this giant puzzle can get really brain burnery as you're staring at the board trying to make your move. Playing this game with two players can help mitigate some of that blocking, but at 3P, you really can't plan too far ahead as the entire board and the routes can change. And if you're playing with some AP people, then it can really bog down the game a bit. But ultimately, Pastali is not a long game, even with some AP. It's quickly becoming a game I bring along for game night. It doesn't take up a lot of room, and more often than not, you're waiting for that one last person to arrive because they're running late. We all know that person, am I right? Note, it's not me. This delightfully yet puzzly, sometimes maddening, but in a good way, is a game that I'll play over and over again. And that's Pastali. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. There's a buzz going through the crowd as the horses rumble down the racetrack, making their way to the home stretch. Bets are being placed at a frenzied pace as odds change and horses vie to be the first across the finish line. Will you be the one holding the winning ticket? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Ready, Set, Bet, a game by John D. Clare, with art by Kirk W. Buckendorf and Athena Cagle. Ready, Set, Bet was published in 2022 by AEG, who sent me a copy for a sponsored livestream on Twitch. In Ready, Set, Bet, two to nine players bet on the outcomes of four horse races. One player will be the house and run each race, or you can use the Ready, Set, Bet app to do so. The house player rolls two six-sided dice and moves the corresponding horse one space on the racetrack. Each player has five betting tokens, and they bet at any time while the house runs the race. All bets are placed on a big roulette-style board, with different odds for the various bets available. Once three horses cross the red line, no more bets are allowed. When a horse reaches the finish line, 
The race is over, and winning bets are paid according to the odds multiplied by the number on a player's betting token. After everyone collects their money, new prop and exotic bets are added to the board, and each player receives a VIP card. Betting tokens are returned to players, and the house begins a new race. The player with the most money after four races wins. Ready, set, bet was love at first game. When my buddy Marcelo demoed an early prototype, I knew that this was going to be one of my favorite games of 2022 and possibly the greatest party game ever released. What Ready, Set, Bet does so well is capture the thrill and excitement of being at the racetrack. It's a brilliant combination of party game with gamer touches throughout. The real-time betting combined with the straightforward gameplay make it a breeze to learn and play. Give everybody their betting tokens, tell them that they can place a bet anywhere there isn't a token, and remind them that no bets are allowed once the third horse crosses the red line, or the home stretch. That's the game in a nutshell. Of course, this wouldn't be much of a game since the most likely outcome of two six-sided dice is seven. Thankfully, designer John D. Clare made sure there was a way to flatten the curve and even out the odds of the horse's chances to win. When a number is rolled twice in a row, that horse gets a bonus move. So, the number six or eight horse moves an additional space when rolled twice in a row, the five or nine moves two additional spaces, and the two, three, four, ten, and eleven, twelve move three additional spaces. However, if the 7 is rolled twice in a row, it doesn't get any bonus movement. In addition to this dice rolling race mechanism, there are two features that elevate Ready, Set, Bet to instant classic. First, the wide variety of bets you can make, and second, the VIP cards that each player gains after each race. The main board is filled with different odds for win, place, or show. When you bet on a horse to win, you get paid if it finishes first. A place bet is paid if a horse finishes second or third and a show bet is for first, second, or third. Each player has betting tokens numbered 2 to 5. If you win your bet, then the number you've placed is multiplied by the odds on the board. For example, you bet on the number 4 horse to win, and it pays 7 times your betting token. If you'd placed your number 5 betting token there, then you'd be paid $35. The tension in Ready, Set, Bet comes from the real-time betting while the race is being run. The house player, or the app, is rolling dice and moving the horses, and you can place your bet at any time. Once someone's placed a bet, that space is no longer available. So if the number 4 horse gets off to an early lead, you can bet on it at 7 times odds to win. Of course, your opponents may be thinking the same thing, and if they beat you to that first spot, you'll have to bet on the lower odds of 6 times or 5 times. Do you play a hunch early to secure the best odds? Or do you wait for the race to develop and see what the other horses are doing before making a bet for a possible lower payout? There are also three types of other bets. Color bets, where you place a bet on what color horse will win. Again, the most commonly rolled number is 7 is handled differently here. If you bet on the 7 color, it must finish 5th or worse. Each race, there are 5 different prop bets. Here, you're betting on a horse to finish ahead of another horse or horses. The horse you bet on doesn't have to win the race, they just need to be in front of the other horse or horses when the race is done. Finally, exotic finish bets have 3 open spaces so more than one player can bet on them. Examples of exotic finishes are the 2nd place horse loses by exactly 1 space, or all horses move six spaces or more. I love the VIP cards that players receive between races that grant ongoing abilities. Veteran gamers will appreciate these since they can break the rules of the normal game. These include additional betting tokens, a cash bonus whenever certain numbers are rolled, the ability to bet on an occupied space, bonus multipliers for different horses, and more. Ready, set, bet won't be for everyone. After all, this isn't a cube-pushing euro or a multiplayer solitaire type of affair. This is a loud and raucous party game in the best way possible that shines brightest at higher player counts. 
In Ready, Set, Bet, designer John D. Clare has the latest hit in his growing catalog of crowd-pleasing games. It's no secret that I'm a fan of his, and I'd love to hear if you're down with JDC. Yeah, you know me. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hi friends, this is John Gonzalez. During the last month or so, I must have played Hadrian's Wall about 45 times. That's no exaggeration. I've actually counted the remaining pages in the game's huge gamepads. Hadrian's Wall is a game I've come to really enjoy, but our relationship is a bit complicated. It's not quite toxic, but it has been fraught with some pretty bad sessions and sometimes I've nearly rage quit. There have been moments of triumph and moments of sheer despair. The game plays up to 6 players, but nearly all of my plays have been using the solo mode that's included in the box. I have become somewhat of a skilled player, mostly due to the sheer amount of times I've played it, as well as the inordinate amount of time I take during my turns, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. So, Hadrian's Wall is a beefy pencil and paper game, or flip and write if you prefer. It was designed by Bobby Hill with development from Shem Phillips. In the game, you are a Roman general sometime around 120 AD, tasked with building a wall to keep out the invading picks. The game itself has you drawing a fate card from the fate deck at the beginning of each of the six years or rounds during which the game takes place, and collecting the resources depicted on that card. You'll be using those resources, workers in various colors as well as bricks, to take actions and fill in empty boxes on your two game sheets. At the end of each round, you'll draw one or more fate cards to see where along the wall the picks are attacking. Depending on how many attacks you defend, you get Valor or Disdain. Gaining Valor allows you to move up on the Valor track which unlocks soldiers and victory points. Disdain earned gives you negative points at the end of the game. The game ends after 6 rounds and you tally up your score which consists of 4 attribute tracks, Valor, Renown, Piety, and Discipline. You can also score points for completing the end of game bonus objectives. The player with the most points wins, and if you're playing solo like me, then you measure your score against a handy skill in the rulebook. Now, I can't give you a complete rules breakdown, especially not in a 5 minute segment, but I will say there's plenty to do in the 6 rounds of Hadrian's Wall. There's plenty of buildings to build, tracks to move across, and boxes to fill. And for me, that's the real joy of the game, bouncing between the two pages in front of you, turning in resources for actions, gaining more resources in turn, and filling in more boxes to get more resources. When you're bopping, when you're working the game, the gameplay loop in Hadrian's Wall is really satisfying. The game can feel a little sandboxy, and most of the time you're not going to build everything, which for me is a good thing. Who is ever satisfied with a game that lets you do everything you set out to do? At the end of the round, your wall gets attacked by picks. You reveal a card from the fate deck and the top part tells you which cohort gets attacked, left, center, or right. Any filled in cohort spaces can block an attack as long as they are in the same section as the attack. Hits that get through cost you negative points at the end of the game. The first two rounds have you drawing one single card, but by the sixth round at the game's conclusion you're drawing 10 fate cards. If you haven't protected your cohort or made other arrangements, those 10 cards can really hurt. There are ways to mitigate attacks and the disdain you suffer when an attack gets through. Some of the most frustrating moments in the game have been a result of bad luck with the random output of the fate deck. It feels pretty bad when you build up your cohorts just to see them get railed on one side. Just card after card attacking the left cohort can really do damage to your ego. 
I don't mind a bit of randomness. If anything, it's another consideration, another compromise you make as a player throughout your six rounds. It's all a balancing act. How many resources and actions do you allocate to protecting the wall versus how many resources you use to get victory points and move you across other tracks. So yeah, a little bit of randomness never bothered me. I think of everyday life and how there are so many things out of our own control. The best we can do is plan ahead as best we can and let the loop take us where it will. At the beginning of each round, each player draws two cards from their personal 12 card decks. One card will become a path card and be placed above your personal board, and the other becomes your prospect card. The path card has criteria for scoring points at the end of the game, while the prospect card is used during the round to interact with the marketplace and the scouting area on the right-hand sheet. Oh, and it also gives you resources. So there's a ton of useful stuff on the cards, but remember you're choosing one of your two freshly drawn cards to become your path card, meaning you won't be getting access to any of the goodies on that card. It's an interesting choice most of the time, trying to balance setting yourself up for end of game scoring and access to a varying set of goodies. And for those of us who like to replay games over and over again, there's a free official solo campaign on the publisher's website. The campaign features 16 different forts to play through. Each one is based on an aspect of the historical context of Adrian's Wall. Each fort has a goal, like completing the wall or building all the buildings on the left-hand side. These goals have to be accomplished in order for you to move on to the next fort. There are also challenges for every fort that, if completed, will net you a reward for the next fort in the form of extra starting resources. At the time of this review, I am on fort number 5 and have every intention of completing the campaign. And to think, I chuckled when I first learned that the game comes with enough sheets for a solo player to play 200 times. So if any of this seems appealing to you, check out Hadrian's Wall from designer Bobby Hill and published by Renegade Games. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as Book of Nerds. Thank you for listening. Happy March, everyone. I'm Justin Bell, and I've got a great game to recommend this month. But first, I have a few questions. Do you like games rich in theme? For example, let's say you love the idea of games about farming. Now let's pretend you find a game that claims that not only is it a game about farming, but that it goes into painstaking detail about the farming process. Buying the land, picking the crops, picking up after the animals, like, like everything about farming. Is that the kind of immersion you're looking for? Do you like games that have asymmetric factions? Are politics your jam? How about economic games? Do you like taking out loans? Now, if you've made it this far, maybe my most important questions are coming up. Do you have a core group of exactly four gamers who are willing to take the plunge on a game enough times to really learn the ins and outs? And do you have four, maybe five hours for the first play of a single game? If you answered yes to all these questions, then I have a game for you. That game is Hegemony. H-E-G-E-M-O-N-Y. Hegemony. Backers of this game's crowdfunding campaign are receiving the game as we speak, or maybe as I speak while you listen, and I wanted to time this month's drop with the release of the game. I was fortunate to receive a review copy of Hegemony after meeting with the game's designers in Germany last fall. What does hegemony mean? Well, hegemony is defined as leadership or dominance, especially by one country or social group over others. The game hegemony calls itself an asymmetric, card-driven board game. It's a bit more than that. In fact, it's a lot more than that. It's a blast, a 25-turn negotiation game, a reminder that the working class has it rough, 
that the government, any government really, loves to collect your tax money. Hegemony plays two to four players, but if I had to make a recommendation, it is this. You should play Hegemony with a full four-player count for your first game. Actually, make that every game. Hegemony is incredible when you have four humans at the table. Because the available factions, the working class, the middle class, the capitalist class, and the state are all available only if the player count is maxed out. And that's what you want. Using a multi-use card management system that forces players to either play a card from their individual faction deck for either its power or as a discard to take a simpler action, Hegemony will make fans of games like Brass, Root, and the Pandemic games quite happy. That's because Hegemony makes each card decision juicy. Across four plays so far, I've been amazed how often I found myself staring at a selection of cards, wondering how I could use all of the powers listed, knowing that this would not be possible. Each faction is working to score the most points. They'll do this by making their people happy if they are the working class or middle classes by gaining prosperity or victory points in each round. The capitalist class wants to make bank by staffing their businesses with workers from those other classes, making deals with the foreign market, and maximizing revenues with low costs. The state? Well, they want tax money. They might occasionally offer benefits like free health care and state-subsidized education. But mostly, they want government-friendly policies to keep all of the three other factions in check. Policies? Oh yeah. Hegemony has an elections phase, mainly to give everyone a chance to yell at each other to push policy. There's a policies table on the board with seven different agendas, like managing the welfare state, immigration, foreign policy, and wages. The working class wants to stay left on that policies table. The capitalist class wants to lean right. The middle class, like Goldilocks and the medium bowl, wants everything to be just right. My first play of Hegemony took five hours and ten minutes. Now, I hate long games. Trust me, after two hours, I'm usually the one looking around the table nervously for something else to do. But with Hegemony, I was shocked to notice the time flying by without issue. This game is fun, especially if you love table talk, taxing the rich, using shady political influence, setting up labor unions, and proposing votes that may require the International Monetary Fund to come in and bail out the government. Yes, that last one is an actual scenario in hegemony, and when it happens, it's a blast. If you can, you should get your hands on hegemony. If this game is not the best game I play this year, this is going to be one for the ages. For more of my tabletop content, check out my profile at www.meeplemountain.com. You can also find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Justin Bell Says. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-B-E-L-L-S-A-Y-S. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and roll some dice. You've been listening to The 5 By, your monthly source for board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 By Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at 5bygames.com. If you like what we do here or want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 5 By Games. Thanks for listening. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.